Let's open the Scriptures to the book of Exodus. In the first place, Exodus 16. And then we'll read from 1 Corinthians 10. So here in Exodus 16, the Lord feeds His people with manna, bread from heaven. And that helps us understand our text in John 5 where the Lord Jesus multiplies the loaves of bread uh, for His people and by the Sea of Galilee. So there's a parallel between Exodus 16 and our text. Verse 1, they, and that's the Israelites, set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is this? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. 
But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain, each of you, in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations, as the Lord commanded Moses. So Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years, till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is the tenth part of an ephah. Let's turn now to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, where the Apostle Paul writes about and reflects on Israel's experience in the desert. So that's the connection back to Exodus 16 and helps us understand what's going on in John 5. Paul writes, verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. 
Our text this morning comes from the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 6, but I'd like to read a few verses from chapter 1 to help connect some dots for us. As we've seen, the Gospel writer John, in chapter 1, he introduces many things that he will write about and record in the rest of his Gospel. And there's a connection in our text where Philip is mentioned, the Apostle Philip, and he's mentioned in chapter 1, verse 43. So we'll read verse 43 to 51. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now let's turn to the very end of chapter 5, verse 45, and then we'll carry on into our text. So we read this last week, but this ties in with chapter 6. This is the Lord Jesus speaking uh, to the Jews in Jerusalem. Verse 45, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father, there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about five thousand in number, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. 
And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And that's as far as our text will go. <clears throat> Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we move into chapter 6 of John's gospel in our series of sermons on this gospel, we notice a shift. There's a shift in location. There's a shift in scene. All through chapter 5, the Lord Jesus was in Jerusalem. He was attending a feast. Now Jesus and His disciples are in Galilee, and Jesus lays out a feast. And you may recall that in chapter 5, there was first a public miracle, the healing of the crippled man by the pool of Bethesda. And then that was followed by a negative reaction by the Jews, the Jewish leaders, and then a lengthy explanation from Jesus. So chapter 5 is a fairly long chapter, but it all hangs together. It's the same pattern in chapter 6. First we find a public miracle at the beginning of 6, the multiplying of the loaves. That the next day triggers questions and criticism from the Jews. And that is followed by a long explanation of Jesus. So we have to understand that in the same way that chapter 5 hangs together as one unit, so does chapter 6. It's a long chapter, so we're going to have to break it up over several sermons, but you need to see it in its totality. In fact, the ideas of chapter 6, they flow out of and they build upon what Christ had revealed about Himself in chapter 5, so they're very connected. You'll recall that the big controversy in chapter 5 was Jesus' claim that He was God's Son, making Himself equal with God. That really troubled the Pharisees and the other leaders. And here in chapter 6, Jesus will take that claim a step further. He will show what He previously had claimed. He'll show it by an unmistakable sign using bread, and Jesus will teach it with unmistakable and unforgettable words, I am the bread of life, later in chapter 6, who has come down from heaven. At the end of chapter 5, as we, we read that too, Jesus said that Moses wrote about Him. And now in chapter 6, Jesus shows that He is the very same God that Moses wrote about. And so I proclaim to you this Word of God. Jesus shows that He's the God Moses wrote about. He shows that He is the God Moses wrote about. We'll see that He satisfies the hungry and He lets nothing be lost. Well, verse 1 of chapter 6 tells us that after the events of chapter 5, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It's a very general description. There's no 
time reference given there. And we've seen before in other sermons how Jesus conducted most of His ministry up in the northern part in the area of Galilee. But like many other Jews, He would come down to the south to Jerusalem for those three annual feasts. At least most of the time, that's what He did. From the other Gospels, we know, and even John's Gospel in the beginning tells us that Jesus spent most of His time in the north. We also know from the other Gospels that ahead of feeding the 5,000, because all the Gospels have this particular miracle in them, ahead of this feeding, Jesus was busy for a good while healing and teaching in Galilee. So, in verse 1, John just compresses all of that activity in one sentence and tells us that at a certain moment, Jesus decides to cross the Sea of Galilee to the northeastern shore. He was always working, or at least for the most part, on the western shores, but now at a certain moment, He crosses to the northeastern shore, a journey by boat of some eight or nine kilometers near the town of Bethsaida, says Mark's gospel. It was a deserted place that he went to. It was a wilderness area. Mark tells us in his account, Mark 6, that Jesus wanted to take his disciples away to a quiet place without any crowds so they could rest because they had been very overworked. But, says Mark, the crowds figured out where they were going. They figured the trajectory of the boats and they hurried around the northern edge of the lake because you could, you could walk around the northern edge. And basically, they caught up with Jesus on the other side in that wilderness area near Bethsaida. So that's what we have there in verses 1 and 2. Now, the next couple of things John tells us are not found in the other Gospels. And they relate to the specific message John wants to bring. Starting in verse 3, He writes, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there He sat down with His disciples. So the crowds are coming. They're beginning to gather lower down. This is a hilly country. And Jesus then goes up on the mountain, and He sits there. What does that remind you of? Mountaintops throughout Scripture are places where things happen of divine significance very frequently. Mountaintop experiences are often loaded with significance and and symbolism even. Also in the writings of Moses, and I want you to start thinking about what Moses was writing because Jesus is hooking into what Moses wrote about him. And one thing that happened on a mountain frequently enough in Moses' writing was God came to a mountain to speak to His people. Think of how the Lord God came and spoke to Abraham on Mount Moriah. That was the mountain that God had commanded Abraham to go to to sacrifice his son Isaac. And after he spared his son Isaac, God appeared and spoke to Abraham on that mountain. We also know that God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush on Horeb, which is called the mountain of God. And most impressively and unforgettably, the Lord 
Exodus 19, descended on Mount Sinai in smoke and fire and dark cloud in order to speak with his people. His voice boomed out from the mountaintop so the whole congregation could hear. So very subtly, John is likening Jesus to Yahweh, the Lord of old, just as Moses would describe or did describe him in his writings. But that's not the only indicator or hint about the Lord in, in this passage. The next comes in verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. The Passover. The Passover was a celebration of God's act of delivering Israel out of slavery to the Egyptians. The Passover was, was a prime meal in the calendar of the Israelites. It was a huge, real-life gospel portrayal that the Lord had come to bring salvation to His people. He had rescued them from what was sure death in Egypt. And it was Moses who wrote about the Passover and about the Exodus, right? It was Moses who wrote about how God had slaughtered the firstborn sons of the Egyptians while saving the Israelites through a substitute lamb whose blood they painted on the doorposts. The lamb itself was a pointer to the great lamb of God, something that John has written about in his gospel through the mouth of John the Baptist who called Jesus the lamb of God. Well, that Lamb of God is now sitting on the mountainside talking to His disciples and about to prepare a feast of bread. And that is the next biggest and perhaps the most clear link to the writings of Moses about Yahweh and Israel in the wilderness, comparing that with Jesus and Israel in the wilderness there near Bethsaida. Both do the same thing. Both provide bread for their people out of thin air. We read about that in Exodus 16, the Lord giving Israel manna. And bread in our text figures just as large. The word pops up five times. And in the context all the way to the end of chapter 6, we find Jesus talking about the bread and the imagery of the bread. The Jews even argue with Jesus about bread and make comparisons with that earlier manna. Verse, look at verse 31 of chapter 6. The Jews say, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This is a whole chapter about bread, you see. And notice how Moses is mentioned in the debate. So our text is a demonstration of ex exactly what Jesus said at the end of chapter 5, that Moses wrote about Jesus when Moses wrote about Yahweh. For Jesus, the Son of God, is God. Jesus, the Son of God, is Yahweh. Jesus begins to teach this by asking Philip in verse 5, 
Where are we to buy bread that these people may eat? Notice that Jesus takes the initiative and that he singles out Philip. Why Philip? Why not address Peter or John, who were known leaders among the disciples? Who even is Philip? What do we know about Philip? Not much. The other Gospels only mention his name. It's only in John's Gospel that we ever hear Philip speak something. And then we heard that from John chapter 1 when he says to his friend Nathaniel, speaking about Jesus, verse 45, listen to this, Philip talking, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. You see, it was Philip who was the first to say what Jesus said about himself at the end of chapter 5. Moses wrote about this Jesus. That's why Jesus goes to Philip now and asks this question. Philip was a disciple with significant insight into who Jesus was, but how deep did that insight go? There's a passage in the writings of Moses, Deuteronomy 18, where he says that God will raise up in the future a prophet like himself that the people must listen to, and that's a famous passage among the Jewish community and also for Christians, and many Jews believe that that prophet that would come would be the Messiah, he would be the, the great Savior of God's people. So that was one passage where Moses wrote about Jesus, you could say, in an obvious way. But is that all? Is it limited to Deuteronomy 18? That's Jesus' purpose in asking Philip, Philip, am I, am I just that prophet? Or am I just the Lamb of God fulfilling the Passover sacrifice like John the Baptist mentioned? Verse 6 says that Jesus questioned Philip about the bread in order to test him. This was a test for Philip. Just what is it, Philip, that you think Moses wrote about me? You know that Moses wrote about me. What do you see in me in the writings of Moses? In Jerusalem in chapter 5, Jesus had claimed to be the Son of God who does the works of the Father who together with the Father is God. That was Jesus' big claim, I am God. And now he's saying to Philip, do you see me in the writings of Moses? Me, your God. I am Yahweh, who once provided bread from heaven. Do you know, Philip, the fullness of what Moses wrote concerning me? I'm not just that prophet. I'm not just the Lamb of God. I'm a whole lot more. Do you see me? Do we see Jesus, the fullness of Jesus in the writings of Moses? When we read Genesis through Deuteronomy, do we see the Son of God? Do we see Christ at work? Whenever we see the Lord at work, Yahweh the Lord, 
four capital letters, Yahweh is the triune God. So it's never just the Father speaking to Israel in the desert under Moses. It's never just the Father saving Israel from their oppressors. It's never just the Father punishing Israel for their rebellion. Always God the Son is there. Always God the Son acts together with the Father in these things. Paul tells us, as we read it in 1 Corinthians 10, speaking of the Israelites out of Egypt, he said, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So they, they went through the Red Sea. That was a form of baptism. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. Here it comes. And that rock was Christ, says Paul. The rock from whom they received spiritual nourishment was Christ. The same Christ who was sitting on a mountainside talking to Philip. A little later in that same chapter, Paul says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, some of the Israelites did, and they were destroyed by serpents. Do we understand the, what he's saying there? When the Israelites under Moses grumbled against God, against Yahweh, we read about some of that grumbling in Exodus 16, but they did it repeatedly. When they were grumbling against Yahweh, they grumbled against Christ. They were putting Christ to the test. And it was Christ who sent the serpents to kill them. Our picture of Jesus needs to be filled out to include all that is revealed about God in the Old Testament from Genesis through Malachi. For Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is as high and as holy as, as Yahweh in fire on Mount Sinai. And He's as close and comforting as Yahweh who came to Elijah in the still, small, whispering voice. He, Jesus, is the God who spoke every command from Mount Sinai, the God of justice. And He's the God who provided a sacrifice for Abraham in place of His son Isaac. He's the God of mercy. Jesus is the angel of the Lord who came to that slave girl Hagar in the desert, rescuing her from death. The same angel of the Lord who later on slaughtered 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in a single night to set His people free. On the one hand, a ferocious fire toward those who hate him and his people. And on the other hand, he brings a tender touch for those upon whom he has set his love. Your Savior, Jesus, together with the Father and the Spirit, is worthy of our deepest reverence, our loving devotion, and our joyful praise because He is your God and mine. He is our shepherd king. That's an image that comes into view here as well, the shepherd king. In the days of Moses, the Lord God showed Himself 
to be Israel's shepherd, guiding them skillfully through the desert and providing them with nourishment and protection. That kind of imagery is found in, at the end of Genesis. Isn't that what Jesus does here? Look at verse 10 of our text. It says that Jesus said, have the people sit down. More literally, he has them lie down or recline. Recline on the grass, he says to them, which John says was plentiful in that place. So we've got here a meadow. Doesn't that make you think of Psalm 23? The Lord's my shepherd. He in love defends me. I shall not want in pastures green. He tends me, makes me lie down, His care and mercy showing. Recline here on the grass, my people. And then what does Jesus do next? Just like Yahweh in Exodus, out of nothing spread a feast of bread for His people in the wilderness, so Jesus in this wilderness from next to nothing provides a feast of bread and even fish besides for His people. And whether you start with five loaves and two fish or you start with absolutely nothing, the, the same level of miracle is happening here for a bounty of food appears where there was none before. Jesus' works are the Father's works and the works that He does proclaim and verify the message of chapter 5 loud and clear. Is God, Jesus is saying, Israel, I am your God. I and the Father are one. I am your good shepherd who tends you in green pastures and leads you beside gently flowing waters. They were right beside a lake, freshwater lake. Come to me, O my people, and I will satisfy your every longing. Give your hearts to me. Did you notice that all the people that Jesus fed, they ate until they were completely satisfied? We're told that there were about 5,000 men. In Matthew's account, it is mentioned there were also women and children besides these 5,000 men. So we're looking at a pretty large crowd. How many women, how many children, we don't know. But for every one man, if there was a child and a woman, or perhaps another one, we might think of a crowd of 15,000, 20,000 perhaps. And John says they ate as much as they wanted, exactly as the manna in Moses' time. Just as Yahweh satisfied His people's hunger fully with manna, so Jesus does the same with His bread. And is that not a picture of how the Father, Son, and Spirit, as our Good Shepherd, truly satisfies our spiritual hunger? This isn't just about a single meal, is it? Feeding people with physical bread was one thing, a good and blessed thing but to feed them with food that satisfies their souls. The longing of their hearts, that is another thing 
That's the hugest thing. That's the most important thing. The manna in the desert was meant as a sign that God would provide them nourishment unto everlasting life. And now here is Jesus providing the same sign to show that He is Israel's God, the same God Moses was writing about, and to announce that the sign is being fulfilled in Himself. That's what the discourse in the rest of chapter 6 will, will verify. Just as He said to the Jews in Jerusalem that as the Son of God has authority in Himself to give life to His people, now He's demonstrating, He's showing Himself to be Israel's God who brings to them the bread of life in Himself. He's the bread of life. Jesus is more than a miracle worker. He's more than a prophet. Jesus is more than a friend. He's all of those things, but He's more as well. He is the healer of our souls. Our souls, what, what's wrong with our souls? Well, every human soul, it hungers for peace, doesn't it? Our souls hunger for peace with our Creator. We hunger to be free from the guilt of our sin. And Jesus provides that abundantly in His death on the cross. He does it with total satisfaction. Our souls hunger to know our Creator intimately. We hunger to have a relationship with Him that is whole and happy and harmonious. And Jesus, God in the flesh, He brings that harmony and wholeness. He brings it to us in His person and in His Spirit who lives both in Him and in us. Jesus is the answer to our greatest need. We get to speak to the living God anytime, day or night. We get to hear Him speak to us in the Bible, and we get to experience His presence with us 24-7 by the Spirit who lives in us, the Spirit of Christ. Like bread in the wilderness with nurtures physical life, so Jesus in the wilderness of our sin is the bread of life to our souls. Sufficient, more than sufficient, to satisfy the hunger of His covenant people with enough left over to satisfy many people beyond Israel so that none will be lost. For Jesus has more to say about himself and his work when he commands in verse 12, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing be lost. Gather up the leftovers, disciples. That's kind of an interesting command, isn't it? Why does he command it? Why is it recorded here? Is this Jesus being a good steward, living up to the adage, waste not, want not? Is this Jesus being environmentally friendly so that all waste is minimized and the hillside is not littered with garbage? Well, no doubt there's some truth in those points, but 
There's also something deeper going on here, much more profound. Did you notice how these leftovers compare with God's feeding of the Israelites with manna in Moses' time? Listen to how Moses describes it in chapter 16, verse 18. And when they measured the manna with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Isn't that something? Let's think about the logistics of that for a moment. There were about two million Israelites in the desert under Moses. Two million people, and we're told there was not a single leftover bit of manna. Isn't that a second miracle? There was no waste in God's provision. Now, there were some disobedient people who left some, but as God provided it, there was no waste. And here, it is the very same principle worked out now in a different way. Jesus commands His people to gather in the extras so that nothing may be lost, He says. Well, we should ask, why didn't Jesus just create enough bread and enough fish to feed the people to their satisfaction without having any leftovers? Like, why have leftovers like the Lord had done in the days of Moses? Leftovers are not an accident. It cannot be that this God does not have the ability or the insight to know how much each of those people there would need to eat. He did it already in the desert under Moses, right? And Jesus has been showing His credentials as Yahweh all along. I mean, if He could create a feast from a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish, if He could turn water into wine cast out demons, heal a cripple, raise the dead, surely He could have made just the right amount of food for this crowd without ever having any leftovers. In other words, Jesus wanted the leftovers. Why? There had to be extra bread, but none of it could go to waste. The message in that is... Jesus is saying, after I have satisfied you, my covenant people, because all these people there were Jews, after I've satisfied you, my covenant people, I have other people I'm going to feed as well. In the time of Moses, there were no other people yet. In Moses' day, God was busy working with the Israelites exclusively. The Gentiles were left to themselves. But now that the Messiah has come, now that Yahweh is here in person to address His people's needs and bring in the new covenant, there will be salvation for Israel and many more beyond. Many of the Gentiles, look at all the extras. It's a bounty of food. And look at how specific the bounty is. Verse 13, So they gathered them up, filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Exactly twelve baskets full. One for each of the twelve apostles. Do you think that's a coincidence? Why did Jesus even... Select 12 apostles, not 10 or 13. Because Israel had 12 tribes. 
And the twelve apostles were chosen to establish new Israel. Old Israel plus Gentiles. Nathaniel, in chapter 1 of John's Gospel, already called Jesus King of Israel. But the Israel that Jesus would gather together would include nations and peoples beyond the twelve tribes. Nations and peoples who would rest on the foundation of the teaching of those twelve apostles. Jesus had announced it to Nicodemus. He said, whoever believes in God's Son will not perish but have eternal life. Not just whoever among the Jews, but whoever would believe. Later in John 10, verse 16, Jesus will say, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Those extra pieces in our text, those are for the Gentiles who have yet to join the twelve tribes. The leftovers are assigned to the apostles particularly, but also to the covenant people, that the abundant salvation that Jesus Christ offers, it extends beyond them to the ends of the earth until all Israel, the new Israel of God, is gathered in. That nothing may be lost, says Jesus. Now, we might think in this context that he's talking about the bread and the fish being lost in the sense of rotting and going to waste. And that sense can be there, but this word is carefully chosen by the Lord because it has another meaning. A very clear meaning in John's gospel, one that Jesus has used already in Matthew, or John 3, verse 16, translated there as perish. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish. We could translate should not be lost. Same word as our text, but have eternal life. And even more telling is the way Jesus uses the same word in His dialogue in chapter 6, verse 39, defending His, his identity. He says, and this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing. Same verb, same root word. I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. I'm not going to lose one, says the Lord Jesus, that none may be lost. That is a word of assurance and it's a word of hope, brothers and sisters. The disciples needed to know, we Gentiles today need to know that Yahweh, the Son of God, Jesus is 100% committed to reaching every last one of His children, His chosen children with His gospel to convert them to faith, to feed their souls with Himself as the bread of life so that not a single soul given Him by the Father should be lost, should be condemned to hell, that none may be lost. That's what I'm about, He says to His twelve apostles. I'm not going to lose one. Your Savior, beloved, is determined to reach the lost. So let us be equally determined to be faithful instruments in His hands. Did you notice how He brings the disciples into this? That they 
are uh, tasked with distributing the food to Israel so they can see the miracle of His provision firsthand. It, It just multiplies before their eyes. And they are also tasked to gather up the 12 extra baskets full, the bread of life intended for the Gentiles. It's a message to those 12, my my provision for the people of this world, it is abundant. And brothers and sisters, you and I need to see that we also once were lost, but have been found by the Lord. We are now disciples of His By nature, we once ourselves were without God and without hope in the world, but now by grace we have God and we have certain hope. And so He he equips us and He tasks us, sends us out among our neighbors to let them know about the salvation He provides in the Lord Jesus Christ so that none of the elect may be lost. Let us be determined to be instruments in that way for our Savior. The elect of Christ, they could be anywhere. They could be all over our neighborhoods, our workplaces, anywhere we go. So let's speak about Jesus Christ wherever we go, to whomever we can, and see what the Spirit of Christ will do. I mean, if He showered down bread from heaven on the sandy desert floor to feed millions. And if he multiplied bread and fish from a a little boy's lunch to feed tens of thousands on the shores of a lake, is he, our Lord, not more than capable of using your conversation, your act of kindness toward your neighbor, our actions and chats with people around us, is He not more than capable of using them to lead His chosen ones from whatever background they are from, whatever tribe, whatever tongue, whatever social standing, to to come to Him and feed on Him in faith? Let us trust in that. And let us obey His instruction. Amen.